0: Hey everyone, did you know NeuroDiverging now offers a free support group for autistic parents, monthly free live classes on NeuroDivergence related topics, and a coaching corner twice a month on Instagram? Learn more and sign up for all of our learning opportunities at NeuroDiverging.com upcoming events. Every day, scientists are learning more and more about how human brains work and how many of us don't fit into the old-fashioned understanding of how brains should work. But a lot of ideas about parenting and familial relationships still need to catch up to the reality of human variation. Neurological differences are natural, profoundly valuable parts of being in a community together and in being part of a family. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, I am here to explore with you. We are all in this together. Welcome to NeuroDiverging. back to NeuroDiverging. I'm so happy you're here with me today. If you're new here, I'm Danielle Sullivan and I'm your host. Today we have the honor and Joy of speaking with Dr. Rabia Suhani. Dr. Rabia Suhani is a neuropsychologist and then went on to become a certified mindfulness teacher many, many, many times over. She's also the mother of an autistic child and she focuses on teaching mindfulness to neurodiverse families. Rabia is the creator of Mindful Village, which is a secular 8 to 12 week program geared towards the parents and caregivers of neurodiverse children. And on this episode, Dr. Rabia and I are discussing what mindfulness is, how it works, and why it's a good fit for many neurodiverse families. We're also talking about why parents need to learn to practice mindfulness before they can teach it to your children. And Rubia is offering many different examples of exercises that you can do at home with your family, which I just found fascinating and really insightful and useful. I also want to let you know that... Uh, Rubia has offered you guys a free mindfulness activities workbook, so I'm putting the link to that in the description down below, and you can also come to neurodiverging.com, and the sign-up is there if you would like to download that activities workbook. I did, and I really enjoyed the exercises in there, and it's, it's just a really good, awesome freebie, so check that out. Also, links about Rubia and Mindful Village are down in the description below. I'd love to thank my patrons for supporting this episode of Neurodiverging. Thank you to Zach, David, Teresa, Sarah, Anon, Outstronaut, and other Teresa. I appreciate you so much for supporting this episode and making this possible. Thank you to Rubia for being here today. And without further ado, enjoy. <laughs> Hi, Rubia. How are you doing today? Welcome to Neurodiverging.
1: I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm having a a good day. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm very excited to talk with you. I guess we'll just dive right in. I know you started your career as a pediatric neuropsychologist specializing in autism, and now you're working on mindfulness with families kind of trying to help their their children with mindfulness. That's a huge Mm -hmm. shift but when that makes sense, like it's interesting, but what originally got you interested in autism and autism research in the first place?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, I started working at a preschool or it was Emory university's preschool where they integrated autistic children with uh, neurotypical children. And it was um, a pretty much a kind of a Hallmark program. this is in the late 90s, actually mid 90s. So this is a while before autism actually was more well known, Mm -hmm. mainstream. And they were one of the first uh, programs that were trying to integrate children that had autism with neurotypical children. And I loved that concept. So I volunteered there and started working there. And I was so fascinated with this population. I was just like, this is what I want to work (laughs) with. Because at the time I was trying to get admission into a psychology graduate program. And so once I did get in, that was what I decided to specialize in. So I did the, my, I went back to Emory and did the therapy practicum. And I did another one um, at a psychoeducational school, elementary school. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, I really want to get into the brain structures and how that's affecting autism. So then I went the whole pediatric neuropsychology route. So Mm -hmm. I've been interested in autism since the mid nineties. And then, in 2003, I had my own child and he had autism. (laughs) I always tell everybody that at least I knew what to do. I had already trained in it. I knew how to work with him. And so that's how, how I got started in autism.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And a lot of parents, when they find out their child is autistic and they get that um, back from the evaluation, there's this big kind of grieving process and uh, fear of, how to help them best and maybe you already having worked with other autistic kids were you able to skip <laughs> skip some of that or
1: well no no i don't i think any parent that first realizes that mm-hmm. goes through those stages um, i think for me it was interesting because i had actually worked with children that were a bit more severe gotcha and my children i don't like to say high function yeah. but he didn't have a lot of the symptoms of the more severe uh, he didn't have a lot of the more severe symptoms yes. so I actually didn't catch it in him for a while. And then, then when he was, I think around two and a half or three, he started, um, he started flapping his hands. Yeah. And then, I, and then he was also then and his language was delayed, but I was also teaching him another language at mm-hmm. home. And his doctor kept saying, Oh, he's a boy. Oh, you're teaching two languages. And you know, all the things that a lot of doctors say. Yeah. And, but when he started yeah. flapping his hands, I was like, Oh, there it is. flag. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, I think I need to start looking at my criteria and you know I realized by then, but yeah. It was yeah, I was, you know, yeah, I think my my reactions were probably tapered because I was already familiar with it and I knew what to expect a little bit and I knew what to do, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of parents struggle with. Well, what do I do now Yes when I get the diagnosis. And like that a lot of that I didn't have those kind of fears because I knew exactly what I needed to do and I did it. Yeah. So um in that And, you know, I I tell people that like, I I feel like I was blessed because I already knew how to do some of the things that parents have challenges with. So yeah, to look at it from a more positive perspective.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think there is that huge. It's so hard to get the diagnosis or get the evaluation and then you finally get it. It's like, okay, but that would waste you. So that's, it's good that you were able to sort of move forward from there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you now work to teach mindfulness to parents and families with neurodivergence. And I think a lot of autism there, right? And how did you originally find mindfulness and then sort of shift over from, because, yeah, neuropsychology is, seems to be, I mean, I can see how they're linked, but sort of a different mindset, right? To move from a highly medicalized.
1: Completely different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's a very different mindset because um, with, with neuropsychology, you're very, um, I guess, it's not spiritual. Yes. <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it. It's, it's very, not cut and dried, but it's, you know, you're going to the brain, you're figuring out how the behaviors connect, you're testing to see where those, you know, those um, discrepancies show up. And so it's a very different thing. And I, when I was doing the neuropsychology, I was doing mostly testing but I was doing some parent training for behavioral stuff as Mm -hmm. well and then what happened was and this is kind of an interesting story uh but about uh eight years ago I went through many many life changes Mm -hmm. I went through a divorce Um, we moved houses several times Uh, my son hit puberty and he changed he graduated from his elementary school went to junior high for the first time so we had a lot of changes in that time and um I had been teaching my son, and this is interesting interesting too. I had been teaching my son mindfulness when he was younger, Mm -hmm. when he was four or five, I started teaching him mindfulness practices and he did those pretty well. They really helped to ground him and keep him from getting overwhelmed. So I was, you know, I I was glad those worked. But then when all these changes happened, everything he'd learned kind of went out the door. It's like he couldn't remember anything. He couldn't couldn't, uh, work with all the practices we'd learned. He wouldn't listen to me. We had a lot of screaming going on. And I felt really bad because I was like, well, I'm the professional. I should know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I can't even treat my own child. And so finally um, I decided that if I couldn't change his behavior, then maybe I needed to change mine Mm -hmm. and how I reacted to fear. So I kind of went on my own personal journey. Um, It was a very profoundly spiritual journey. It was, I did lots of different spiritual retreats. I did basically immersed myself in mindfulness and, Self-compassion, yes. which I had been lacking, I had not realized mm-hmm. it. And once I got into this, I was it had such a profound impact on me uh, and my relationship with my son. Yeah. I, I was over, like overjoyed with how much I was seeing, um, how much difference I was seeing in his behavior and my behavior, just because I was calm and I had learned how to control my reactions. I was responding instead of reacting. I was, uh, had a higher threshold for when I would get upset mm-hmm. and all of these changes plus the self-compassion um, really changed our relationship. And it made such a huge difference that I was like, oh my gosh, I need to go teach this to other people. Yeah. I need to teach this to other families that have neurodiverse children because it's out there and nobody knows about mm-hmm. it. I mean, mindfulness is now much better known than it was 10 years ago. But it's still not really mainstream. It's not like something that's, you know, like if you get a diagnosis uh, for your child, your chances are your uh, diagnostician is not going to tell you, oh, you should try yeah. mindfulness. <laughs> right? They're going to say behavior therapy mm-hmm. or um, OT or speech mm-hmm. or something, one of the more mainstream uh, therapies. But their chances are not, they're going to say, oh, you should try mindfulness yeah. because you need help too, because the parents need as much help as the kids. Mm-hmm. And we, tend to, as parents of neurodiverse children, we tend to forget that. We don't, We the children have to come first. They have more needs. They have more, uh, I mean, they're, they're vulnerable. Yes. They need our help. And we don't think about ourselves and we, we, we need to, because it's, you know, the whole oxygen mask yes. analogy I love to use when I'm teaching parents. I'm like, if you can't, if you don't recharge your own batteries, you're not going to be able to help your child. Yeah. And so I was just so passionate about this. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to do this. So I went and back and retrained yeah. uh, in a lot of evidence-based practice, you know, coming back from that science background, yeah. I, I did a lot of evidence-based mindfulness uh, programs. And um, I loved this, the ones that I did, I did like four or five different ones, but I didn't had there wasn't any one program that met all of my mm-hmm. needs because I was trying to retrain in one and then teach it, yeah. but there was always something missing, and so I thought, I started thinking about two years ago, I was like, huh, maybe I should just make my yeah. own." So I did. That's what, that's what my, uh, so I've, I've made my own program It's called mindful village and it has, um, mindfulness, self-compassion, positive psychology, because I think we need more than just to be present. We need to be hopeful mm-hmm. and optimistic about the future. And I think that's so missing also in, uh, neurodiverse families. Yeah and then neuroscience because i do use research to back up what i'm saying it's not just me pulling stuff out of the hat <laughs> saying oh try this and try that it's like no this is, there is there's is, and there is lots of uh research now it's there's been research going on for years but there are you know at least 10 20 years worth of research now that's available to show the benefits of different mindfulness practices i was going to say yeah, so yeah. Those are
0: the ones Mindfulness and positive psychology are the ones I'm most familiar with. And I know that they are both, I think people come at them and they hear, maybe they hear especially mindfulness and think it's a little woo woo or out there. Um, But there's a ton of evidence that it can do wonders. And yeah, so I, you know, I hope people will hear that when they, (laughs) that was one of my hopes for today talking to you was we can get that out there a little bit. So
1: you know, it's and also just wanted to point out uh, real quickly that a lot of the concerns people have around mindfulness is that they think it's uh cannot be taught in a secular manner and it absolutely can. yes i mean it yes. comes from a lot of uh you know the wisdom traditions like buddhism and stuff but but it can absolutely be taught and learned in a secular mm-hmm. manner so that should not be something that holds people back yes
0: i agree i am uh, a secular humanist which uh, is a, you know, a form of agnosticism and I can do mindfulness. So if that helps any listeners out there, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, you can absolutely, and you can also use it within the wisdom tradition if that calls to you. Right. Yes. But yeah, you can separate it out. Exactly. So,
1: yeah. Do what, what, what is, works for you. That's, that's my motto to do what works for you and what you're being kind to yourself.
0: Yes. And that self-compassion aspect you were talking about, I really, that really speaks to me. Your whole story is very powerful, but that particular is a piece that I feel was missing for me in the first couple of years when I had my kids very close together, um, and then they were autistic and ADHD respectively. And so there was a lot of big emotions in those young years when people weren't regulating as well, and I wasn't regulating that well either. And I feel like the self-compassion piece and the mindfulness pieces. Really did help me move. I didn't have what you had in terms of the stress levels and everything that happened at once it sounds like in your life, but you know it was still for me a highly stressful situation, and those aspects helped me so much and I think it's so fantastic that you were able to take your background and your sort of higher education and refocus and use all of your skills to create this program. It just sounds really exciting and yeah and really needed Thank
1: you. <laughs> i I hope so i, I... My goal is like, um, and I have several free resources as well on my mm-hmm. site for, because I know that, you know, not everybody's going to be able to invest in a program right now, but I want to make, a, one of my goals is to have a nonprofit that just gives it for people to have new resources, but I also do have lots of free, free things on my site as well for people that want to do other things. To I can do that.
0: That's wonderful. And folks, there'll be links in the description below. So make sure you check them out. And I just realized sort of partway through this conversation that we didn't actually define mindfulness <laughs> for anybody. Because oh. I'm just resting <laughs> on the fact that maybe people know what it is. Is there like a short uh, description of what mindfulness is that we could offer to folks?
1: <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I'll be happy to say. So mindfulness is bringing your attention to the present moment with a loving, non-judgmental awareness. So, in in practical terms, when you're practicing mindfulness, you're not thinking about the future or the past. You're just completely focused on whatever you're doing in the present moment. But you're also not judging it. So you're saying, you know, just noticing what you're doing. And one of the things I know uh, you're probably going to ask me how, what well, how people should practice mindfulness. Um, and one of the things that I, I tell people constantly is that one of the easiest things you can do if you're not into the sitting meditation or you know, any of the mindful movements, if you want to just do something simple, then bring your attention to whatever activity you're doing and make it a daily habit with something that, you know, like a daily chore or like brushing your teeth. And how you would do that is that as you were brushing your teeth, you would watch the water coming out of the faucet, notice as it hits the sink, uh, notice the color of your toothpaste and your toothbrush and you, you know, watch yourself putting the toothpaste on then taste it as it comes in and close your eyes and let the flavor of the toothpaste, you know, kind of blow up in your mouth. And it's, it's, it's the little things it's, you're not thinking about the past. You're not thinking about your to-do list. You're not thinking about, you know, Oh my gosh, I've got to now run and go get breakfast or whatever. You're just completely focused on your task. And when you immerse yourself in that moment, your whole mind, body, and soul, everything is in that one perfect moment. And you have no worries. You have no cares. You're just full of like a, it's almost like a joy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's profound because if you can start using that quality and start expanding it in different activities, then you'll notice how much your day is, is somehow better and it's more flavorful and it's more, it's happier. And it just has a huge impact on your way of thinking Mm -hmm. and looking at things and Your uh, overall just mindset changes; that becomes more positive as you continue to live more and more in the present. Now, there's some things you can't, you know. Obviously, when you're driving, you probably need to be looking (laughs) alert and looking around. Don't focus on your steering wheel and notice it go, you know. So there are things where you think some some common sense and say, well, you know, this is probably not the best time to be Mm -hmm. doing that. But there are so many things during the day, washing dishes, you know, vacuuming. If you're doing chores, if you're doing work if you're eating this is my favorite one and this is one so I'm gonna um, give your listeners like a packet okay. of like mindful activity to do it's gonna be just a freebie and they can download it from my site uh, but I like to give people a little like a little chart they can check off and little activities they can do to just start getting used to uh, practicing mindfulness and eating and drinking is the best my favorite one is my first cup of tea in the morning yeah I mean I over that. I it let the steam hit my face. And it's that there's nothing quite like that first cup of caffeine. I feel that anywhere, so much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm like, you know, I'm a food motivated person. I'm not ashamed to admit it. And that first cup of coffee, I'm a coffee person. But that first cup of coffee, I just am all in like 100% of my attention is on that cup of coffee. Yeah, it, it's really, I, do, I don't think I There are things I would like to improve about my practice of mindfulness, but I think I'm much more, um, it's something that I really try to implement when I can. And it's one of my go-to habits for calming myself down, Uh for deciding, am I actually feeling a way or am I just having a reaction to something else that's, you know, happened, Um, especially with small Mm -hmm. children that uh, mindfulness has really helped me separate out, okay, what am I feeling versus what is, what are they feeling? And are they like, you know, do I need to get upset about that? So, yeah, it's been really one of the reasons I was so happy you agreed to come on the show is I feel I'm not in any way an expert on mindfulness whatsoever, but um, it's made such a difference in my life that I really wanted to talk to somebody who actually knew what they were doing and, you know, kind of get these resources to people. So, it's so fantastic.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's great. And you don't have to know it to be practicing. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And be kind to yourself. Yes.
0: (laughs) That's a huge piece of it, right? Is the lack of judgment, which is so hard. It's so hard to do, I think, for so many people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, that's that was actually one of the first pieces that brought me into the whole immersion thing. Because as I got into it, I was like, oh, I'm not really practicing self compassion. I'm, 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 it's much easier to do it for other people Mm -hmm. than it is to do it for yourself. And one of the things that I do teach people when I'm telling them about self compassion is to think about how you would react if what you're doing is, would be your best friend doing it. Would you, what kind of words would you have for your best friend? So the little exercise is called um, to treat yourself as your best friend Mm -hmm. would treat you. But just to, if you start thinking about how, if if you're being hard on yourself for some reason and think, well, if your best friend or one of your friends had that happen to them, what would be your words to them? It would probably be something kind and comforting but if something happens to you, your words to yourself are so much harsher absolutely, and they're so usually judgmental and they're, uh, they're not kind, loving words. And why is that? Why can't we treat ourselves? Like we treat our best friends mm-hmm. so, and how can we change that, yeah. that mindset and start being kinder to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think self-compassion is so important for, um, particularly for parents. Yes. Um, I mean, of course this is the population I work with, <laughs> self-compassion is important for everybody but the population I work with most is parents and caregivers of neurodiverse children. So that's where I gear my uh, talks to. So,
0: well, parents and caregivers of neurodiverse children are constantly judging ourselves for,
1: uh, absolutely, or
0: just hearing from society, being judged by society and internalizing that because, you know, our kids are doing something different and it's even if you're conscious of it and you don't really believe it it still sneaks into your brain and you hear yourself yes. telling you, yourself these things that are just not not self compassionate and not, not very helpful so yeah
1: yes. we just tend to be particularly harsh on ourselves yeah
0: absolutely yeah i think that's something i've really had to work on and again i'm getting better at and have seen so many results from it so
1: so when i first started using the mindfulness practices the first thing uh, that happened when I noticed that they were actually working was that I no longer had road rage. Oh, wow. <laughs> which I was never really bad about it. I wouldn't, you know, like I wouldn't cuss out anybody or anything. I would just get irritated when people pulled out in front of me. But then I, after months of doing mindfulness, I got cut off and, and it was a really bad one. And instead of thinking, you know, horrible things about that person, my first thought was, oh my gosh, I hope nothing happened. In their family or there's not an emergency that they're having to rush yeah and, and when i got home yeah. i started thinking about i was like wow that's complete <laughs> that's a complete 180 and what i used to do that must mean my practices are working because i have so much more compassion yeah. for people in in situations where i would have originally have not had you know those are things that you just i would get irritated about yeah. just minor annoyances but now they were like oh I was actually thinking about other people and strangers in a kinder respect. And I noticed things with, you know, my own family inside, inside my relationship with my son. But the first time I noticed that was happening outside, yeah. that was probably a really big aha moment. I was like, wow, I, it's really working. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, I think if you practice the different kinds of mindfulness practices and those are like meditation or mindful movements, like walking meditation, there's a lot of little meditation things you can do. And when you start doing them consistently, even if it's five minutes a day, that's when you start noticing the changes. And if you keep building on that, like, if you notice that drinking your first cup of caffeine is, is really helpful to you, if you drink it mindfully, then you might start doing it for lunch, or you might start doing it for, you know, something else. Um, Finger foods are great to teach kids with. But yeah, I think just how it's personally helped me is that it's lowered my stress. Um, I'm much calmer. I'm, I'm much more living in the moment joyfully. Yeah. Um, it's completely changed my, I mean, I was always kind of optimistic, but now I'm really optimistic. Yeah. I just, right? I just live like it's every moment is a moment that I can be joyful. I can choose whether I'm living from fear or mm-hmm. love. And I always pick yeah. love. And so it's changed my entire outlook on life, how I approach relationships, how I approach other people. Um, pretty much everything in my life has changed. And I, I want to be able to share that with other families because I'm like, you don't have to be miserable. You don't have to be yeah. uh, you know, like stressed and overwhelmed all the time. There is, there is, there is a better way to live out mm. there. You just need to find out, you know, how, how you can access it and
0: I love how passionate you are about it. (laughs) Thank you.
1: I am so passionate, and that's why you know pediatric neuropsychology is a really great field. Absolutely, but it was not fulfilling to me. So it it wasn't soulfully fulfilling Mm -hmm. to me. This calls to me. This is my passion. This is my something. When I talk about, I get I just light up because it feels so um, authentic, Mm -hmm. and you know the the. My training that I did previously, I loved it. I enjoyed it. I really liked testing. I thought it was really using my brain creatively, and you know, it was uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I didn't, I didn't hate it, and I wanted some out. But this, this is like a way for me to uh, kind of align all of the spheres of my life in one place. Yeah, you know, my job, I'm living it. I'm teaching it. I'm. It's just all of it in one place, and it just feels so. Um, I guess authentic is the best word. It just feels like, it feels right. It feels like I'm, this is what I was meant to
0: do. That's a good positive psychology word to find your authentic, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: That's fantastic. And so if we switch a little bit to, we've talked a lot about like what mindfulness is and how um, different, I guess, specific tricks for getting, to to integrating mindfulness into your everyday life. But how specifically is it helpful for neurodivergent people? Is there a difference between how neurodivergent people approach mindfulness compared to neurotypical people that you're aware of or specific aspects of neurodivergent life that mindfulness supports that maybe neurotypical people don't have to deal with as much or...
1: So, so one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on um, parents and caregivers was because I know that the practices work because I taught them uh, even before I taught it for myself. And this was actually, I didn't say this, but in my big epiphany, when I went on my own journey, I realized that the reason why the mindfulness practices were no longer working for my son were because i had never did them. Oh, myself. how interesting. I taught him. Yeah. I taught him because i thought he needed it not me mm-hmm. and i was so wrong because if you are not if you're not authentically living what you're teaching especially when it comes to mindfulness and you're not modeling it and you're not showing it you're not actually showing what to do when you get overwhelmed when you get stressed and and if you teach it from a young age and you model it for your kids they're going to pick up on it and specifically for kids that have these challenges they get overwhelmed their environment feels like it's not there. It's out of their control. They usually have, um, and I'm kind of lumping in a lot of neurodiverse. um,
0: Yeah, but there are um, some common traits, but there are a lot
1: of similarities, (laughs) right? Most of these kids like routine. They, they deal better with routines. They don't like changes or sudden surprises. And um, the way mindfulness helps with these is that it helps them focus on a specific moment. They're not getting, they can they can bring themselves back to where they are by focusing on their breathing. They can do it through uh, mindfulness of the body where you, like, if you're sitting, you can just feel the sensation of where your foot is resting on the floor. And that gives you something to focus on. Um, so these are practices that help kids um, and uh, adults, anybody that gets overwhelmed they feel like there's too much sensory input or there's so much going on in their environment. They can't deal with it. And it brings them back to where they are and they're, they can focus on their breathing. They can focus on their bodily sensations. They can do, um, you know, little techniques of mindfulness that help them, I guess, get out of that overwhelm. I think that's one of the biggest things. A lot of uh, people that have these challenges have are overwhelmed. And easily overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Like you go into a crowd, it's too much noise or light. You know, there's so many things that can just sensor sensory um, input that can just overwhelm a person that has some kind of challenge. And so, what do you do during those times? You're trying to, you know, like trying to think about all your cognitive behavioral yeah. stuff. Or uh, it's easier to just come back to your breath. Mm-hmm. Your breath is always there. You don't have to think of anything. You don't have to remind yourself of a specific technique. Mm-hmm. You just say, you know what? I'm just going to focus on my breathing or I'm just going to focus on where my hand is resting on my leg. Um, for self-regulation, emotional self-regulation, if you get used to learning how to be mindful of your emotions and feelings, then when you do get overwhelmed, you remember those practices to come back. Yeah, it's already right to there. Help you. Yes, calm down. And the, the key is to practice all this stuff before you need it. Um, and so if you, if you do it and you teach your children... you're doing it too you're showing you're showing your child what happens when mom or daddy gets upset Mm -hmm. right you're modeling the behavior of how you respond to anger and not react Mm -hmm. and your child sees that picks up on it and they're able to also use it so in particular i think the the overwhelm uh, with sensory things um all those kind of things are are what i think really helps with mindfulness Mm -hmm. and and you know like i said I used it with my son. I actually also taught it some th- to some families. My biggest mistake was never learning it for yeah. myself, and so that's where I was like, "Oh no, I need to teach the parents almost first before I teach the kids." So, like, so I'm actually going to be d- developing um, a child centered program later in the mm-hmm. year. But for now, I wanted to teach the parents first because the parents and caregivers really need to learn it because if they're not practicing it, then it's not going to be as helpful. for them. Yeah.
0: It almost doesn't matter because yeah, like you said, if the kid, if you don't model something for your child, I don't know. I just feel like the child is like, well, that's not a real thing then because you're not doing it. It's like when the rules are different for the parent and the child, (laughs) you know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think with mindfulness, it it was, um, it's easier to follow rules that are more concrete, but if it's for something like mindfulness and you're, I don't know, I don't know why it didn't occur to me when I was teaching my son that I needed to do it too. Mm-hmm. But I was just thinking, oh, is this going to help him? Because he gets overwhelmed. I don't get overwhelmed. Yeah. It. Uh, but that was denial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was denial. But it was, you know, I was like, okay, I'm an adult. I can handle mm-hmm. it. But again, that when you're drowning in something, you don't see yeah. it all the time. That's where the self-compassion piece comes in because. I, you don't have time for yourself. You're, no, my child needs me. That's more important. I got to put my child mm-hmm. first. And no, you, you don't put on that mask. Yeah. You're not any good. Your Everything just either. was,
0: I always like, cause the, the parent, if the parent isn't um, in a healthy mindset or in a happy mindset, what are you going to give to your child? Like if there's nothing to give them because you've emptied yourself out. So it's, for me, always important to, it was a big, challenge for me when they were younger to put myself first. And now I'm much better at it. But still, it feels like a radical notion, like a going against society notion, just put yourself first as a parent, especially as a mom or a woman parent, um, say, no, I'm going to be first. And that's so that I can serve my family better out of my fullness and my, you know, kind of richness as as a person. But um, there's so much Social pressure to be the the empty mom, the mom who is, you yes. know, it's normalized to be this constantly drowning, constantly frustrated, constantly juggling, you know, twenty things kind of person. And I really think there's a lot of space to move away from. It. Like sometimes you're going to have those moments, obviously, but for an everyday status quo, I feel like that's just not how it should be, <laughs> you know. So no. yeah,
1: that's where that self compassion
0: absolutely. That's such a
1: powerful it's, piece. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, what you guys can't see is that I'm using a Hoberman sphere to show how you can uh, visually show children how to breathe. And so it's a sphere. It's like a toy that blows up and then, well, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a hollow sphere that opens and yes, expands and closes in. And this is a great um, cheap and uh, cheap and effective way to teach children how to breathe because Little kids, especially, are very visual learners. So, if you show them that, oh, I want you to feel like, you know, take in some breaths, either your chest is blowing big and strong. And so, there are lots of little things you can teach children to get them into mindfulness. Um, and children are great learners. If you make it fun and you make it playful, they'll be happy to do Absolutely. it. And then, when they need it, you can say, remember what mommy taught you about <laughs> your breathing when they're in it, you know, when they're upset. Mm-hmm. And one of the funny things I did when my child was younger was I taught him breathing and I taught him how to breathe when I rang a bell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> loves, so I love
0: style. That's gonna- cute.
1: <laughs> We're like, and that was my psychologist. Coming <laughs> so I was like, when you hear this bell, it, it was a lovely ting, t- you know, very nice bell. I was like, when you hear this bell, I want you to practice your breathing. Mm-hmm. And so when he would get upset, and I got him used to breathing every time I did the bell. Mm-hmm. So when he would get upset, I would ring the bell. And when he was younger at work and he would still remember to do his breathing, but when he got bigger, he was like, I'm not going to do that, <laughs> but it was great for teaching him when he was little. Yeah. I was like, anytime you read the bell, I want you to start doing your breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. So when he would get upset, I'd be like, ring the bell, Yeah. <laughs> just breathe in and out. Cause you know, when children are in the middle of a meltdown, they are not really thinking clearly. It's a and great so- kind
0: of shortcut to just say, Hey, I noticed this about you. And when, because when, I get in spaces where I can't hear anyone, like I can hear you, but I can't interpret anything anybody is saying to me because I'm that overwhelmed. And Abella is a great kind of shortcut way. I mean, we have like hand <laughs> singles and stuff in my house now as adults, but great shortcut ways to say, I am noticing that you were having, you were doing this, you are having this problem, whatever. And, you know, this is my effort to, yes. to make you notice that. And then also to show a child the association between, um, I think sometimes little kids get upset or overwhelmed and they don't realize that they're overwhelmed and even adults, right? Yeah. That you're overwhelmed and somebody has oh, to be yeah. like, Hey, I notice you're overwhelmed. And then you're like, Oh, you're right. <laughs> but the bell is a really nice way to be like, notice where you are. That's overwhelmed. That's what that is. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> and
1: I would say, I would say we both need to do our breathing yeah. because we're both getting upset. I would ring the bell and we both do the breathing. Yeah. So I did do that. One. Yeah. <laughs> I may not have done the yeah. mindfulness, but I did the breathing. Uh, but he um, yeah. So anyway, um, there are there are lots of ways to teach kids about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, one mm-hmm. of the um, I'll put this on the on, in the packet as well. But uh, the way I taught my son as well was with um, Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. a Vietnamese uh, monk who basically brought mindfulness to the West. Uh, he's really credited with that. But anyway, he's written a lot of really cute little books for children. And those were the books that I used to teach my son. And I really promote them because they're so easily, uh, they're very readable. They're user-friendly. They teach really cute little techniques with beautiful little words to say with them. And so the two of the things that I really recommend are people for if they want to get started is to read, start by reading one of his books. He's even got a little book about with a CD with music in oh, it that wow. teaches about micro movements that you can do with your children. That's so great. So those are really fun too. Just little, you know, little exercises. But yeah, basically, absolutely start your kids when they're little and they're not going to need as much help when they're big. Yeah. You do it with them. Absolutely. You got to do it with them. <laughs> That's okay. You do it with them. <laughs> and do you have any other tips? You give us so many
0: tips. I feel silly for asking, but do you <laughs> I have... I feel like I did... <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other tips that you wanted to mention for folks who want to get started with mindfulness at home? We have the focusing in on your, uh, a task or a, a specific part of your day. Yeah, we have, absolutely. yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> the, the easiest things I tell uh, for adults is to start with one mindful activity. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I talked about the, with the brushing your teeth or, you know, doing dishes, you just noticing everything as you're doing it. So I would say start with one activity. And even if it's just drinking your first cup of coffee in the morning, don't try to be too hard on yourself and say, oh, I need to do three or four a day, or I need to build up every week. Don't just start with what feels comfortable Mm -hmm. and natural. Start with one a day, maybe even just do it three times a week. And then maybe gradually, as you notice that it's really helping you get the good, a good start to your day, you might want to increase it to two activities Mm -hmm. or something. Um, And then the other thing I do recommend is to do like a meditation Uh, for even if it's just five minutes, if you do a five minutes sitting meditation and just use your breath as your anchor, so basically you would just uh, sit and try to you know quiet your mind down and bring your attention back to your breath every time you get distracted and just breathe calmly in and out. And so it's nothing major. You can even do a guided one by there's hundreds of meditations mm-hmm. on YouTube yeah. and everywhere. Uh, but if you just want to do a quiet one with your, you know, just sitting still and keeping your focus on your breath mm-hmm. and just start with five minutes, don't make it complicated. Yeah. You don't have to do anything fancy. You don't need to, you know, a fancy meditation cushion <laughs> Just sit in your chair. You can even do it standing, mm-hmm. do it standing in the bathroom for five minutes, you know, like after you get out of the shower. But if you start with one activity and a five minute meditation and do them as much as you can whenever you can without being judgmental. Mm-hmm. Don't be harsh on yourself if you skip a day. Don't. You know, this is one of the things that Pete, this is mindfulness is supposed to teach you about not being non <laughs> about being non-judgmental. So don't bring that into mindfulness as well. Yeah. Just be uh, kind and compassionate and yeah. I, I I personally my favorite is self-compassion. So one of the first things I teach in mindfulness classes is being compassionate to yourself yeah. and teaching yourself some self-compassion um you yeah. know exercises and so i'll i'll put one of those in the pet's wonderful yeah <laughs> just because it's my favorite <laughs>
0: so, no the self-compassion is i think i said just such an important piece to me overall for especially uh neurodivergent people just because especially those of us who weren't diagnosed until very late like i was there's So much self-judgment that has gone into your life before. (laughs) And uh, Mm -hmm. the best way to turn that around is to start noticing what you're judging yourself for, especially if you're judging yourself by neurotypical standards that don't apply to you anymore because now you're not a neurotypical person. So it can be really valuable just to pay attention to those and notice those and do some of that self-compassion work. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's that's really my, um, I think that's my favorite part of, well, in positive psychology, yeah, I, mean, I love mine. I love all of them. There's so many fantastic avenues,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> but but the fact that you offer yourself some kindness, and that you're living from a place of joy, I think those two components are so important um, with any neurodiverse population. It's just it's, you know it's having that hope and optimism, and not just getting by, mm-hmm. but getting by and succeeding yeah. and being happy and having a joyful life. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things to me are, are so important. Yeah. I really want to, you know, get that message out that there, there's lots of free information on the internet. You don't have to buy anybody's program. I have lots of free resources mm-hmm. on my side. I have, a, I have a free Facebook group. Um, it's, you know, there's lots of resources available. If you know where to look, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, just making that effort to, well, first of all, it's having the knowledge that these things are helpful. Yes. Because there's not, there's not a lot of research, in particular with neurodiverse populations mm-hmm. with mindfulness. And it was hard for me to get training in anything because I had actually ended up going to Amsterdam <laughs> because there was a lady there, a professor who actually created a program for teaching uh, families that had children with ADHD mm-hmm. about mindfulness. And so I went there to train for that program because I was like, you know, there's there's nothing here. The U.S. has was lagging behind. Yes. This is only years ago. Mm -hmm. So even two years ago, it was hard to find anything here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's just knowing that that is helpful. If you know, you know, you can go find it anywhere. The information's out there. Yeah, It's just being able to, you know, use those, making those practices part of your daily routine. And you will see the benefits, I promise. It
0: can be so (laughs) empowering. Yeah. Wonderful. And I know you said it briefly, but just one more time, where can listeners find you if they want to learn more about any of your
1: programs, any of the free resources? Oh, thank you. Uh, So yes, I actually have two websites because my Dr. Reby site is where my professional psychology stuff is and I have my bio and everything on there. And then I made another site just for the program that's called mindfulliving-llc.com. And that's where, but you can link to either one from both sites. So it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, but the program is hosted on mindfulliving.com, mindfulliving <laughs> slash llc.com. And I do actually have a free quiz on there if you can take to see how mindful you, you parent. Ooh. And there are a couple of, uh, there's a free mini course on mindful parenting and a free master class on five ways to self care while taking care of your neurodiverse child. So there's a couple of freebies on there if you want to. Test
0: awesome! It bumps into everything we talked about today too. It's perfect. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: Thank you. It's been a joy talking to you and chatting. And um, I hope your listeners are able to use some of those practices and.
0: I think help. I think they will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here today. Neurodiverging is dedicated to helping neurodiverse folks find the resources we need to live better lives as individuals and to further disability awareness and social justice efforts to improve all of our lives as part of the larger world community. If you're interested in learning more, please click the subscribe button to make sure you're notified when there's a new episode. Take a look around the website at neurodiverging.com. We have episode transcripts, blog posts, more podcasts for you. If you are looking for something specific or have a question, send me an email at neurodiverging.podcast at gmail.com. And please check us out on Patreon to support this podcast and this blog, patreon.com slash neurodiverging. Have a wonderful week. Be kind to each other. And please remember, we are all in the